Well, we began our summer sermon series this morning in the book of Corinthians, and we are calling it United. Now, if any of you are familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, you might find that to be a somewhat ironic title. Because the church at Corinth was anything but united. They were about as divided and dysfunctional as a church could be and still exist. And so that's why Paul talks to them a lot in this letter about unity. And therefore, our title, United. Our mission statement says uh, we are family and we want to worship Jesus, love each other, reach our world. And we're kind of focusing in on that second statement, love each other. But we don't want to love each other as the Corinthian church was doing. We want to love each other as Paul was talking to the believers at Corinth about loving each other. Of course, unity, it's a tough thing in our um, fallen human condition. We can be proud and self-centered, and that is tough on unity. But the Corinthian church, well, they had some other challenges on top of, of those formidable ones that they already had. And so we need to talk a bit about the context of Corinth. The Corinthian culture worked against Christian unity. The Corinthian culture worked against Christian unity. What was it about Corinth that made unity such a challenge, such a struggle? Well, Corinth, we're going we're gonna to be kind of in Corinth this summer, so we might as well get a little bit familiar with our context. Let's talk about the city of Corinth for a little bit. The city of Corinth was an aspirational city. In other words, there was an upward mobility in Corinth that was actually very rare. That was exceptional in the Roman Empire for, for there to be even the possibility of upward mobility. Uh, Corinth had been completely destroyed by the Romans about 150 years before Jesus uh, came onto the scene. But about 100 years after it was destroyed, Corinth was rebuilt as a Roman colony, and they settled it with people from all over the empire, from different cultures all over the empire, a lot of freedmen, who that is, people who had been slaves who were now free, a tradesmen and workers were settled there in Corinth, and so it became quickly a large uh, multicultural urban center. And in Paul's day, Corinth uh, had a population of about 80,000 to give you an idea of 80,000, that's, that's a little more than the population of Kosciuszko County. So that's how large Corinth was. And it was one of the wealthiest cities of the Greek states there. And the reason why it was uh, wealthy, you can kind of figure that out just by looking at this map, why it was wealthy. It was, it was strategically located on that little neck of land that separated uh, northern Greece from southern Greece. And so all the trade, all the commerce, all the land traffic had to pass through Corinth in both directions. You also see that it's that narrow piece of land uh, between the uh, different seas there. In fact, sailing around the south part of Greece was dangerous and it took time. It was actually safer and cheaper to drag, to haul the boats over that little neck of land than to sail all the way around. And so they, they had not only the north-south commerce and traffic, they also had the east-west 
traffic going right by Corinth. And so, of course, all of that trade and commerce and economy made it into a bustling center. Kind of like Warsaw Winter Lake. <laughs> I mean, we got 15, Route 15, you know, north-south, and we got 30 going east-west. And that's why we have a Walmart whole area and a Meyer whole area and a Menards whole area. Why do you think we have all that stuff? We have it because we live at a crossroads. Okay, fine. Corinth was a little more important crossroads than Warsaw and Lake, but you got the idea is that there was a lot of wealth, uh, and so there's a lot of potential for upward mobility. And of course, in a situation where there's the possibility for people who are of a lower status to be able to climb the ladder, whether it's um, economic or social or political, then there's a lot of cutthroat jockeying for position, a lot of I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. And so there were, there were all this kind of jockeying and pushing and striving. There were just a lot of strivers trying to get, to get ahead, get to the top, because there was that possibility. And so that really permeated the atmosphere of Corinth was this upward mobility. But a lot of, a lot of divisiveness comes from that mentality of I'm going to get ahead at all costs. I'm going to use you to get ahead. Whatever it takes for me to get ahead, I'm going to do it. And that kind of was the dynamic of Corinth, and it, it seeped into the culture of the church. So these kind of um, secular principles also were reflected in the mentality of the church. How are we going to get ahead? Now, even though there was upward mobility, of course, there was an upper class, and uh, these were called patrons, and these were people of means of wealth, and uh, they would take on clients, and these would be individuals or families or whole associations of trade workers, and they would kind of have an agreement that the, the, the patron who was the wealthy one would provide money or jobs or land or security or legal help or whatever, and in return, the client would be loyal and would praise the patron and try to lift his status and make him look good and kind of give him all the, the kudos. And uh, that was this, so this was going on uh, in the culture there. And we see these class divisions also showing up in the church. And these patrons, of course, there was some rivalry among the patrons. Who's the greatest? Who's the wealthiest? Who's the best? And they had different means and ways of elevating their honor because it was an honor and shame society and honor meant everything. And so there was always this push towards the top. That was the mentality of Corinth. But it was unfortunately also seeping into the mentality of the church. Corinth was also the Las Vegas of its day. Here's a picture of uh, Corinth today. You can see some of the ruins. There were lots and lots of temples uh, all kinds of, because all these people from the different parts of the empire brought with them their different religions, but up at the top of that rocky outcropping was the famous temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love, which uh, supposedly was home to a thousand prostitutes who would come down into the city at night and ply their trade. And so Corinth became synonymous with gross immorality and drunken debauchery. And so the, even the, the word Corinthian girl was uh, used of a loose woman. And to Corinthianize someone was to corrupt them morally. And so this whole uh, sensual culture was, was rampant. It was, it was um, renowned, kind of notorious in the empire for its sexual 
immorality. And sadly, even that was reflected in the church, as we'll see. One commentator summed it all up this way. It was really interesting what, this, what uh, R. Kent Hughes says. The ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual, the merchant who made his gain by all and every means, the man of pleasure surrendering himself to every lust, the athlete. Uh, Corinth had games that were second only to the Olympic games. And so all that, talk about comparison and competition. Competition was kind of the, the air that Corinthians breathed. Um, athletes steeled to every bodily exercise and proud of his physical strength are the true Corinthian types. In a word, the man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desire. What are, where are we talking about? Where, where are we talking about? In, uh, we, we, I teach a class called Scripture Interpretation at Grace College. And uh, as part of inter interpretation, we talk about measuring the width of the river between the original context, the original audience of Scripture, and, and our culture. You know, what are all the cultural and linguistic and historical differences? How wide is that river? How wide is the river between Corinth and Chicago? It's like Cherry Creek. You can jump over it. It's... There is a lot of similarity between Corinth and our culture, so I think you'd actually, you can rewrite that first um, bullet point as American culture works against Christian unity, because there's a lot of the same thing, the individualism, the demand for my rights, you know, the American dream is upward mobility, man, do it, whatever it takes, get ahead, comparison and competition, are you kidding me? It's rampant even today in our culture. And so we have a lot in common with Corinth. And so the problem at Corinth was that they, the church hadn't made enough of a break from its culture. Uh, the, the culture was still the reference point for most people instead of the gospel in Jesus Christ and the cross. And so Paul's going to address these issues. Paul had planted the church in Corinth. He spent a year and a half there uh, planting that church. This is now three years later, and he has received a, a report from some people who had been in Corinth talking to him about some of the problems, and then he'd received a letter where the, some of the believers in Corinth had questions about things. And so uh, 1 Corinthians is a response to these things, but we need to pay attention because it speaks into our culture it speaks into our lives very directly and very clearly. So Paul's going to start off his letter in a typical uh, fashion of writing a letter back then with uh, t saying who the sender is and who the greeter is, with a greeting or sending uh, who the recipients are, and then he'll greet them and do a prayer of thanks for them. But he's, he's going to begin really here with uh, urging them to make Jesus Christ the reference point of their lives. Jesus Christ is the believer's reference point. Now, as we read these first nine verses, I, I, I encourage you to do something. I'm a big fan of writing in my Bible, and here's a good opportunity to write in your Bible. And that is, as we read through here, circle every time Jesus, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Lord, and any words or, or pronouns that refer to Jesus Christ in this nine-verse section, 
just circle that, and then maybe you can underline the words God, and then then we're going to make an observation in just a minute, but let's dive in here. Verse 1, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Sosthenes may have been uh, the amanuensis, the one who is writing this for Paul as he dictated it. Paul, of course, establishes his apostleship, his authority right now. These words aren't just coming from Paul, they're they're coming from God. And it's not about the eloquence, you know, the the Greeks were all into flowery oratory and rhetorical skills. It's not about that, it's about the source, and the source is God, and Paul is the apostle who is speaking uh, to them from God. And then he's going to begin to talk about all the grace that they have received, both in the past, in the present, in the future, as he goes into talking about the recipients and greeting them and praying. Verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus, for in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. There he's talking about kind of past grace, all that they have already received through faith in Jesus Christ. They have been sanctified, they've been set apart to be God's holy people. They are saints, and they've been called to live a pure and holy life. They've received grace of God. They've received the Holy Spirit, and with the Holy Spirit, gifts. He's he's saying, this is is already all true of you. Of course, the the whole thrust of this letter is going to be towards uh, living a holy, godly, pure life. But Paul's going to root that kind of life in the foundation of the fact that they are saints, and we, we, we aren't called saints because we, we, we live good enough to be called saints. Uh, we, we live good because God has called us saints. Okay? He, he, has, he has called us, and he's cleansed us, and he's made us his own. And out of that foundation of being set apart to him, then we live a life that pleases him, a godly, holy, pure life. And so he says it's already true of you. It's already true of you, and because it's true now, please live. Live according to the truth of your identity in Christ Jesus. That's past grace, and then he he moves into the present in verse 7. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gifts as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. God's given you everything you need. (laughs) In, In this culture where they were all striving to get ahead, and they were comparing, and they were competing He says, you have everything you need. You you got all you need. You you don't need to be striving and competing and stressing out this way and being divisive and trying to get yourself ahead by putting others down. You already have everything that you need in Christ Jesus. And then he talks about future grace. In verse 8 and 9, he will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so he says, you will be able to stand in judgment 
blameless because of your faith in Christ Jesus. That's who you are. He's established that fact. Now the rest of the book is going to be about living in light of that truth. Living that out. Live out your identity. This is God's grace in your life. It's going to transform you. Live it out. So the reference point needs to be Jesus and his grace. Do you all have reference points are important. When I lived in Berlin, I had a great example of a reference point. Here's a picture of Berlin. Guess what the reference point was? So Berlin is very flat. It's very, just like Indiana, Berlin is flat. But, it, but in the middle of Berlin, east, it was East Berlin, the East Germans built this very tall TV tower, the Fernsehturm. And you can, Berlin is big city, you know, five million, and it's really spread out. But you can see that tower from just about anywhere. It was hard to get lost in Berlin because all you had to do was look on the horizon until you found the TV tower, and then you knew where you are. And we lived right in the shadow of that thing. We lived almost under it. We lived very close to the TV tower, so I never had a hard time finding my way home because all I had to do was find the reference point. The reference point was the TV tower. Now, here's a cool thing about the TV tower. Look at this next picture. The East Germans didn't intend this. Uh, the, I'm sure whoever designed it got in big trouble. And that is when the sun shines on the TV tower, look what appears, a cross. And so the big reference point for everybody in Berlin actually had a cross on it, which I think is a great symbol for our lives, what, what Paul is trying to tell them right now. And, and notice how many times, if you circled it, Jesus Christ is mentioned in those first verses. It's like 12 times. It's not because of you. Don't orient yourself to yourself. It's not about your culture. Don't orient yourself to your culture. It's about Jesus Christ. Orient yourself. Make him the reference point of your life. And so Paul is saying you need to define yourselves by reorienting your lives, past, present, and future, to the truth of Jesus Christ. Jesus needs to be the reference point of your life. It's easy to get away from that to stray away from that. All I had to do in Berlin was look, remind myself, there it is, head in that direction, and I got home. Is Jesus Christ the reference point of your life? Are you orienting your life, past, present, and future, according to Jesus Christ, the gospel, and the truth? Get your eyes up and look to him. That's the beginning challenge that Paul gives these Corinthians is you've been, you've been confused, you've gotten lost in your culture, you're letting it define you. Find Jesus Christ, again, is the reference point of your life. Orient yourselves to him in all that you do. Jesus Christ is the believer's reference point. That's the first idea there. Secondly, the countercultural truth of the cross calls for unity. We're going to get into this whole topic of unity. He's going to jump in quickly into this whole topic. And so he appeals for unity here. This is going to be the theme verse for our next nine or ten weeks here this summer. This whole summer, this is our theme verse. So we're, going to, we're going to read it a lot together. I encourage you maybe even to memorize it. So let's do it. Let's read this out loud all together, kind of our theme verse for this sermon series. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters... 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. There it is. That was Paul's appeal to the believers in Corinth. Be perfectly united in mind and thought. Why is unity so important? Why does Paul stress unity so much? Well, um, we believe in and we worship a Trinitarian God, a God who is three in one, who is by nature unified. Unity is a part of his being. That's who he is. And he has created us in his image. And so in us is this longing for whole, complete, healthy, harmonious, unified relationships. We get that honestly from God. And that's, that's the longing that we have in us. The biblical word for that is shalom, peace. And, and so that's what we were made for. We were made for shalom, for peace and unity. It's what we long for. It's what's best for us. And so Paul, Paul wants what's best for God's people, and that is unity. And not only, not only that, that certainly makes unity important. That's what we were made for. That's important. But it's also important because Christ paid an inestimable cost in order to restore our relationship with the Father, to reconcile us with God, to give us peace with God and peace with each other, to restore unity. Jesus gave his life for that. that that's why it's important. But yet there's more to the list. There's more than just that. It's that our unity is a strong witness to Jesus Christ in the world. You know that Jesus prayed specifically and directly for you and me. In John chapter 17, he, he prays. He prays first for his disciples, his immediate present disciples and followers, but then he prays for you and for me. And look what is important to Jesus when he prays for you and for me. My prayer is not for them only, them being his immediate disciples, those who would be the apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That would be you and me that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Our unity with God our unity with each other, the harmony, the wholeness, the shalom that we live out as God's people is so unusual and countercultural that when we live that out, it is a strong witness to the world. And so we need to live it out in all aspects of our lives. I was talking with someone yesterday, and she shared with me a quote that um, we, we live in a in a, uh, a, a culture that doesn't value wisdom. It's a non-wisdom culture. And, and since we live in that kind of a culture, then for those who are aging, the message is just, just get out of the way. Just get out of the way. Because we don't value wisdom, the message is just get out of the way. But we can't be like that as a church. We have to value all the generations. Uh, and we need to come together, not get out of the way, but come together and learn from each other. That's why we did the five gen groups earlier um, 
this year, but it doesn't need to just be kind of an aberration. It needs to be a quality of our life together as a church that we, we learn from each other and we come together. Now, we don't, we're not going to always agree on style. It's not about style. Uh, we're, we, those are secondary things. It's about substance. It's about heart. It's about what it means to know and love Jesus, what it means to, to experience his faithfulness and to learn to be faithful. Those things are absolutely essential, and we need each other for that. And so we need to come together and not allow generations uh, to divide and separate us. Um, we can't... Oh, I, I was so proud of our Grace College students this year when, when one student... Uh, said something divisive racially, hundreds of students then responded by um, protesting uh, for all of the students, no matter what their background is. And I thought, man, how am I, how am I doing that? How am I publicly in some way um, addressing the things that divide us by, by trying to, to establish connections with people and, and unity with people beginning in the church how are you in any way in your life uh, making a statement by your life, by your choices, uh, not to go along with a cultural track that leads towards disunity and divisiveness, but to bridge those gaps and to demonstrate to a world that, that Christ saved us for unity? What does that look like? We have to pursue that kind of a thing. Finally, unity, why is it so important? It glorifies God. It reflects back to God who he is. And it reflects the world what he's like. And when we are divisive and when we are not united, we, we mar and distort and darken the picture of who God is. And we don't want to do that. We, we want to accurately reflect uh, who God is to the world. That's why unity is so important. What destroys unity? What destroys unity? Well, I'm afraid um, we'll find a pretty long list in each of the sermons in uh, the book of First Corinthians will highlight a, a different way that unity can be disrupted. But here, let's read about what he talks about first here, and starting in verse 11. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Ah, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. <clears throat> I love the honesty of Scripture. Don't you like that? <laughs> if you were just making this up, you wouldn't have put that line in there. All right, uh, so, so um, Paul is absolutely confident, by the way, in what, what God tells him but he's not always confident in his own memory, okay? <clears throat> That's an aside. All right. Oh, the, oh the, here's, the, here's the thing that divided them. That's the I'm of attitude, the I'm of attitude. And, of course, that was a part of the culture, too, is that these patrons, these wealthy families in the groups that were uh, loyal to them, that showed allegiance to them, they often would hire kind of their own teacher, and they were all into wisdom. Of course, the Greeks were into philosophy, and they had all these philosophies. And they put a lot of emphasis on um, rhetorical skill and flowery language and persuasiveness. And it was a lot about style and not so much about substance. You know, who was the most, uh, we've got the most entertaining speaker. 
you know? So we, we, we hear echoes of that in our culture as well. But they, they were putting, kind of elevating themselves uh, through someone else's gifting or abilities and saying, oh, this makes me even better. And so using someone to get themselves ahead is something that destroys unity. And of course, uh, uh, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, that's Peter, uh, they, they would all be teaching the same thing. They were not teaching a different gospel. They were teaching the same thing. They were consistent in what they were teaching, but they were different people and had different styles, and people were kind of orienting themselves not to Jesus, but to some of these people. And maybe it was, I don't know what the reasons are exactly. Apollos evidently was an educated, highly educated, uh, probably from an upper class and so maybe those from that same class kind of joined with Apollos, whereas Peter was not. And those who were not of the upper class maybe oriented themselves more toward Peter. By the way, I wouldn't put too much stock in the people that say, I'm of Jesus. They were probably just more self-righteous than the others. So they were all a bit divided about that, trying to actually gain their sense of identity from others, from their association with others. I... Uh, my association with you somehow elevates me in my own sight and in the sight of others. Again, comparison and competition is the dynamic. Now, how do we do this today? It starts young. <laughs> yeah, well, my dad's a fireman. Uh, we, you know, you heard that on the playground a bit. So uh, I, I, I elevate my sense of self-worth and my identity from my association with a parent, for example, which is kind of you know, not too dangerous, but that attitude doesn't go away with maturity. Oftentimes it just gets worse, and then we, we're pretty sophisticated about this kind of thing. We'll say, oh yeah, I, uh, I studied at such and such a school under such and such a professor. You know? Now, we're not really complimenting the school or praising the professor. Who are we actually praising? Myself. Through my association with this school or my association with this person, I elevate myself in my own eyes, in the eyes of other competition and comparison going on. We do this in all kinds of ways. We do it with the house we buy or the car we drive or the, the job we have. Um, we do it with um, the school our kids go to. I'm of Lakeview. Oh, I'm of Edgewood. We have that rivalry, you know, uh, c comparison and competition. We can even get real spiritual about all of this, and uh, we can... We can do it with things like theology. You know, I'm of John Piper, so kind of Calvinism, or I'm of Wesley, so more Arminianism, and we get all um, proud of our association with certain theologies and certain people who represent those theologies instead of Jesus Christ and the cross. We can even do it with preaching. Um, <clears throat> oh, I'm of uh, John MacArthur, kind of exegetical, expository preaching, or I'm of Andy Stanley, more topical kind of preaching, and we somehow feel like those associations elevate us. By the way, I just want to compliment you. Let's take a pause here. So we have a speaking team, and one of our fears years and years and years ago when we started this was that this would happen, that there would be people who was all I like, and, I, and you know, people would show up only on certain, but that has not happened at all. So thank you very, very much for embracing the entire speaking team and not allowing this kind of a thing to um, divide us. I've never experienced that here, so thank you very much. But we do do it, right? We do it. We, we, we find ways to uh, pull identity and importance and value and worth from other people and other things. There's nothing wrong with everything I just said as far as 
where you work and what you do and all that. It's when you try to find your identity in that and then the pride comes and you compare yourself to others. That's what causes the divisiveness and um, it, is, it is harmful. It hurts. What else causes division? Human pride in human power and human wisdom. We don't have time to read the rest of the chapter, but Paul's going to talk about uh, how futile human wisdom is because human wisdom doesn't actually, actually acknowledge and deal with the problem. Human wisdom is all about getting ahead. It's pride at the heart of things. And so all these striving going on in Greek culture, you know, wisdom, you know, pursue wisdom. But the pursuit of wisdom was simply a way to leverage getting ahead, to have more power and more influence, and to get to the top of the heap. And that, but that didn't really solve the problem. I, I think of um, the story my brother told me. He's a missionary in Africa, and years ago, he, he would go hunting with his son. And every once in a while, his son's name is Jordan. And every once in a while, the villagers would uh, have a, a rogue elephant who was destroying things, and so they'd ask my brother to come and shoot the elephant. So one time, he and my nephew uh, went hunting, and, and my, br- my brother said to my nephew, listen, elephant are fast for a little while, so if they start to charge, don't turn and run, because they'll catch up with you and your toast. So, but they don't see very well, so if, if, there's, if they start to charge, just actually stand completely still. So they go out hunting, and they find the elephant, and the bull makes a little move. And so the nephew does what? Turns and runs. <laughs> and so my brother's running after him, you know, running, and finally the, the elephant didn't actually follow him, and they, my brother finally catches up and says, what, what, what is the problem? I told you you can't outrun an elephant. And Jordan says, I didn't have to outrun the elephant, I just had to outrun you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this, this, is what, this, is what, this is what the people in Corinth were all doing. They were trying to outrun the person. And in, in a situation where the pagan religions and Judaism were all merit-based, it's what I do, it's what I do, it's how I perform, it's how I compare to others. That's what gets me ahead. If that's what all the religions are like, then that, that doesn't get you anywhere. And the cross is offensive. It's offensive to both pagan religions and Judaism that puts all the emphasis on merit and how I'm doing and comparing to other people. The cross is offensive because the cross says it's not all what you do. It's what Jesus has done for you. And so you need to stop, not run, not strive, not compare, not compete, but surrender, surrender. Surrender yourself to what Jesus has done for you. Trust in what Jesus has done for you. Allow Jesus to transform you. Trust that you have everything you need uh, in Jesus, that you don't, you know, it's out of your brokenness that you try to find identity in the world when you have all the identity that you need in Jesus Christ. Trust in him for that. That's offensive to people. What repairs community? Uh, What repairs community is the opposite. It is, it's humility, it's humility. It, it's, you know, Christ on the cross. Christ, Christ didn't come to say, what can I get or gain from you to get me ahead? The cross represents the attitude of, what can I give? 
how can I serve to help you? That was craziness in the culture. That was absolutely countercultural. That was the clash, this whole, this whole idea. And so the challenge of the cross to us is humility, and the cross levels us all because it puts us all in the same boat as sinners who need salvation. And it puts us all in the same boat as far as grace is concerned because it's, it's what Jesus did, not what we do. And calls us to trust in him. So that, as Dave read earlier while we were singing, God gets all the glory. God gets all the glory. So, so what are we going to do with this? What are we going to do? Well, here's a great application statement for you. We're not goldfish. We are not goldfish. How about that? Goldfish can't think about the fact that they're in water and that they're wet. But God has given us brains and his truth to be able to, 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 to look around and say, what's true about my culture that runs counter to the gospel and to the, into the cross? And how is my culture impacting me? And where do I need to say no? And I want to challenge the graduates who are coming in in just a second. The graduates, as they head off into the world, they're going to be encountering wisdom from the world, human wisdom, which is filled with pride. And uh, that, that, that wisdom makes life better. But it doesn't make us better. <laughs> so I, I like human wisdom in the sense that it makes life better. But I, I don't put my hope and faith and trust in human wisdom for making me better, or you better, or us better spiritually in the things that really matter. So I, I challenge our graduates who can't hear me right now, <laughs> but let's challenge all of us to say, where am I putting my faith and trust? Is it in human wisdom or is it in the upside down, countercultural, counterintuitive, but absolutely true and necessary gospel of Jesus Christ and the cross? Let me pray. Father God, as we head into this uh, letter, I pray that you would challenge our hearts to the spirit to be, to be able to become aware of the ways in which our culture have, has influenced and defined us in ways that are counter to the gospel. And I pray that by your grace, you would help us to reorient ourselves to the cross of Jesus Christ, his attitude, his mentality, his life, that he would become the reference point for us, and that one of the results of that would be unity and harmony and wholeness and health in our relationships, so that the world will know that Jesus is Lord, that he is real, that he is true, that he is life, and that only he can address the real problems and save us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.